right, I'm recording, right. Paul. So all right, I good. So, up. you know what? I'll I'll bring us in. <clears throat> la la la. <laughs> Got to start every show with that. <laughs> Back to the bin. Hey everybody and welcome to Back to the Bins. I am Paul Spataro and I am joined here today by my very good friend, Dr. Bill Robinson. Who is getting over being sick, so you'll have to forgive him. He may not actually say any uh, understandable words during the course of the show today, but he's with us. And we are joined by two very special guests today. We have the return of the hair metal hero, Chris Tyler. Hey, how's it going? Good, how you doing? Uh, I was just trying to steal Scott's bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, I even gave you the opening with the how you doing, because he, he gets a kick out of that. So, you know, so I think he thinks I sound like some sort of... You know, caricature of a Brooklyn guy. He thinks you're Mr. Spock, like you did <clears throat> that one episode. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, he did introduce me as Paul Spock. <laughs> <laughs> we are also joined today, I think for the first time ever on Back to the Bins, by Mr. Sean Engel. I'm special. And he is very special, and that's why he's with <laughs> us here today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this is my first time on Back in the Bin, so thank you for having me on, Paul. Really appreciate it. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you. I'm glad you were available to be on with us. And, Sean, you do the shocking horror thingy with Chris, right? Yep. And you also do Just One of the Guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the uh, <clears throat> Green Lantern uh, Guy Gardner podcast, which uh, sadly is wrapping up the whole Guy Gardner run. Recently, we just uh, finished up on trying to scrape together some other ancillary books that Guy's in. But from now on out, it's all, all Kyle Rayner comics. So if you're not listening to that, well, you're probably a lot of people. But <laughs> uh, You know what? You, you've covered a lot of books that I haven't read. You've, some of them I've read, but most of them I haven't. And I just haven't had time. What I like to do is I like to, you know, if, if you're covering a specific book and I can, I like to pull it out and have read it before I listen to the show. But I haven't had the time, and I've been listening to a lot of them without having read the book, and I'm still enjoying the show. So I would. Well, I appreciate that. that. One. You know, uh, the, the the '90s are a time, are a pretty tumultuous time in comics, and a lot of people overlook a lot of the comics and dismiss them as you know just that the big guns, big boobs, pouches era. And there's a lot of good stuff in there. And the Green Lantern books, you know, even starting in the '80s and moving on to the '90s with uh, Hal Jordan moving into Kyle are just some really fun stuff, and I'm glad that I'm able to cover it, and I'm glad that people are getting some enjoyment out of it. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's been it's, it's an enjoyable run, so hopefully, uh, hopefully, well, you still have a lot of issues to cover with Kyle, though. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm, there's almost 100 more issues that I've got to cover for him, so, yeah, it's going to be fun. Uh, uh, Sean also does, uh, you, you've got the Then There Guys, which is the US1 podcast, too. Thanks for thanks for uh, plugging that. Yeah, <laughs> kind of hey, as a it's out there. Joke. Yeah, kind of as an April Fool's joke. I decided to cover uh, with Jay Ferguson the uh, 
the Maxi series of US One, a podcast about a uh, trucker with a metal skull in his head, which allows him to receive CB signals, and <laughs> it's as goofy as it sounds. It's it's been a fun ride so far. I'm I'm looking forward to see what the last issue is like because. Uh, I have not read these issues, and I'm not reading ahead. I'm taking it, you know, when we do the podcast, I read the issues. But, uh, yeah, the last issue might be interesting because it's got Ditko art in it, Steve Ditko art from the 80s. So I'm wondering whether or not it's going to be impressive or whether or not it's going to be just, yeah, so. I, I generally, I don't know the issue specifically, but I generally find late Steve Ditko art as unimpressive because... Mm-hmm. It seemed to me like he lost a little bit of his ability. You know, his his layouts weren't as dynamic. His his figures got even more simplistic than they had been. And it looks to me like the Inkers were afraid to have too heavy of a hand with him and improve on it. And, you know, because of that, his, his artwork kind of came off as almost, you know, childlike in some ways, which yeah, it shouldn't be. That's kind of what I'm worried about, you know, I because, you know, Ditko is iconic in his early runs with, you know, Spider-Man and Doctor Strange. Those are all considered to be classics, and I'm hoping I don't hit issue 12 of this and go, oh, this was a big letdown. I, I fear you might. And again, mm-hmm. it's I, I'm not saying that based on any uh, experience with the issue, just my late experience with Ditko. Understandable. So. Here I'm plugging Sean. He's our guest. Sean's also the... The driving force be trying, be trying, be trying behind the da, <laughs> da, 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 who true freaks, <laughs> and uh, and he's also with um, Chris and I on Walking Dead Wednesday. Mm-hmm. So uh, oh, that's true. You can, you're, you're, you're all over the place. I, I sold you short. Sorry. Okay. Well, I, I I just came and co-opted the whole true true freaks thing. So yeah, so I'm certain Scott loves the fact that I'm I'm now on this show, which is basically his baby. So he's probably like, what the, what the hell is he doing? Uh, I, I, no I actually think Scott is, is very happy that you're on the show. I don't think he's, well, uh, I, I don't think he's got a problem with it. Cause it, it might be different if he wasn't on because you're on, but he wasn't available today. So I think he's, I think he's very happy that when he's not available, the show is still rolling along. Mm-hmm. So. Well, it's, I guess it says something that it takes two people to uh, to replace one Scott Gardner. So there you go. <laughs> That's how awesome Scott is. Okay. I'm missing his ass. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're going off the rails as we always do when Scott isn't here. So usually, usually he's driving us off the rails, but for some reason we get off quicker when he's not here. But uh, today we're going to cover four Wait, did books. You just hear what you said that we get off quicker when Scott isn't here. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I may have some heavy oh. duty editing to do on this one. <laughs> I thought I, I thought I was horrible when I, you know, told Dave asked Dave Walker on Who Drew Freaks if he was beating off Irishmen. So yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, man. Okay, well there we go. I'm gonna mute now. <laughs> All right, well we got four books to cover today, so we should probably get into it now. We're gonna do one Marvel, one DC, and two pretty mainstream indies this week. And I've got the Marvel, so I'm going to jump right in. All 
I'm covering Incredible Hulk number issue number 449, which has a cover date of January 1997. Uh, the cover by Mike Diodato Jr. proclaims, Introducing the Thunderbolts. And there's an image of a somewhat stocky-looking Hulk, uh, and as Sean said, wearing a pair of Daisy Dukes. And he's holding Mach 1 uh, in the air by the front of his outfit, which kind of looks strange to me because I thought the front of his outfit was made of metal, but the way it looks, it's just material, as if he's grabbing him by the shirt. And then Atlas is in the background on all fours, and these would be, at that point, two characters that had never been uh, seen in Marvel before. The story is written by Peter David. It's penciled by Mike Diodato Jr. It's inked by Tom Wegrzynski. <laughs> I'm sure I'm saying that terribly. Uh, colored by Glynis O'Connor. Lettered by Comic Craft. And edited by Bobby Chase. The story opens up somewhere in the West where the Hulk and Janice are uh, in the air. Janice is on his back as he's leaping. I wasn't familiar with the character of Janice, so I looked her up. And she's a cast-off from the dystopian future of the Maestro. And she's Rick Jones' granddaughter who came back to recruit the Hulk uh, to help defeat his future self. Anyway, they're uh, struck by some type of a missile. And as they fall to the ground, Mach 1 catches her. But she quickly shoots him with a staff that she's holding. The Hulk lands in a rodeo of all places, and is yeah. quickly. <laughs> and he wasn't even dressed as Meccano. Uh, <laughs> he he's uh, quickly accosted by Atlas, Songbird, Techno, and the, and Meteorite. Which again, these would be totally unfamiliar characters at that point. He raises his hands in a sign of surrender, and Techno aims a weapon at him, and Songbird erects a sound prison around him while they try to figure out if it's some kind of a ruse. We get a quick view of Janice and Mach 1, and Mach 1 flies off. And then we cut to Virginia, where Henry Gyrick and Colonel Carrie St. Lawrence, another character that I wasn't familiar with, but apparently uh, was a military person charged with uh, bringing down the Hulk. And they're discussing an engagement with the Hulk that they previously had, and the report comes in about this standoff with the Thunderbolts. We cut back to the Rodeo, where the T-Bolts are wondering what to do, and Citizen V arrives. The Hulk says that he was waiting for all of them to be in one place before he acts, and at that he claps his hands together, causing a seismic uh, wave, uh, which causes Songbird to drop her sound cage. On Citizen V's orders, Mach 1 and Techno fire on the Hulk. The Hulk leaps off, but is struck by a missile and dropped into a uh, dam. The Hulk doesn't understand why the attack hurt him, and we see that he's bleeding. As Meteorite and Mach 1 close in, Janice appears and uses her staff to fire on them. Janice and the Hulk take on the T-Bolts, and as they battle, the Hulk recognizes Meteorite's voice at one point, which is kind of a cool clue to the Thunderbolts, which I don't think anybody really thought too much of at the time, but he recognizes it, that it's a voice he's heard before. Uh, she says something about protecting the innocent, and he says, okay, we'll protect them from this. And he smashes a hole in the dam. And so the Thunderbolts get involved in rescuing people and repairing the damage to the dam. And as the Hulk and Janice discuss what just happened, Hulk grabs his chest and collapses to the ground, and the story is to be continued. And that's the end of the issue. 
Elizabeth, I... I'm coming. I'm coming, Elizabeth. Oh, it's a big one. <laughs> what are you shooting at me, Mach 1? Huh? Big dummy. <laughs> I thought this was such a cool issue, actually. I read this when it was new, but I really didn't remember it as far as the finer details. Uh, I remember at the time thinking, okay, it's kind of a lame team that's taking them on, that they're introducing, uh, and and didn't know, you know, <laughs> didn't have the slightest clue what they were going to do with the Thunderbolts. Uh, you know, spoiler alert, whatever it is, uh, how many years ago was this, uh, 16 years ago? Uh, so, real spoiler alert, that they all turned out to be supervillains. Uh, and I, you know, think it was a pretty original idea. I like the Mike Diodato art. He's got a very kind of aggressive looking Hulk. And I think this is in the time period during the Heroes Reborn when Bruce Banner was actually in that pocket universe that they created. So the Hulk had no Bruce Banner influence on his actions. So Mm -hmm. that more violent look kind of fits him or that more aggressive look. You know, his eyes are like deeply set and very dark. You don't see any pupils in them. Uh, you know, he's 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 often got like a, a you know, kind of a scowl or or a uh, you know like baring his teeth kind of thing. Uh, just you know, pretty cool art. It's it definitely has that '90s look. You know, where where like some of the panels are skewed, uh, not necessarily for storytelling purposes, just kind of to to make it look interesting. Uh, but it doesn't seem to work. I don't think it works to its detriment. Uh, and and the story is well told, and it's a great introduction, especially considering where they eventually went with these characters. Uh, have you guys read this issue? No, this is the first time that I read it, but yeah, I really like it. I I've been listening a lot to uh, J. David Weeder, J. David Weeders, and Michael Bailey's and Lee Busby's uh, a Pad Smash. And uh, hearing that this was a Peter David issue, I was really interested to know whether or not this was. Peter David coming back on the run, or if this was like a continue, if this was you know a continuation of his run, because I knew for a while he left the Hulk book to write something else, and uh, the characterization of the Hulk here was really, I, I didn't know that this was at the time when uh, Banner was away from the Hulk, or he was out of the Hulk, because Hulk seems pretty coherent for mm-hmm. the Hulk. I mean, he's actually delivering intelligent lines and speaking to them rather than just the stereotypical child like Hulk smash type stuff. But uh, I kind of I kind of remembered that the Thunderbolts were essentially a, a team of villains sort of rehabilitated to do good, uh, you know, kind of like the Marvel version of uh, what the not the secrets, not the, the Suicide Squad, the Suicide Squad. Yeah, exactly. So um, I, I enjoyed this issue. And yeah, it does have a very 90s layout in the pages, but the story is awesome. I, I don't think you can go wrong when uh, Peter David's writing the story. Yeah, I, I think the, the I mean, the storyline at this point was they weren't rehabilitated, though. They were uh, they were no, villains they just, were... Me, you know, acting as heroes with with the hopes of getting everybody's, you know, uh, confidence. And then they were going to turn it and, you know, pinky in the brain and rule the world. <laughs> And uh, eventually, though, you know, the, I guess that story got played out after a while in the Thunderbolts, and they eventually turned them into a Suicide Squad-type team. But that's, that's definitely a more recent uh, incarnation of the, of the team. I mean, they, they definitely went quite a number of issues with the ruse 
And then it was a matter of, uh, you know, some of them started kind of liking the adoration of the crowd, and some of them, you know, wanted to continue acting as heroes. They had some yeah. battles with the Avengers and some different things going on. I mean, it, they, they definitely made the most, I think, of the Thunderbolts run early on. Did I cut you off, Dr. Bill? No, 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 no. No, uh, I mean, yeah, yeah, they, um, a lot of them did want to keep being heroes after this, and it, and it was a split in the team. The character of Janice, this being a uh, Peter David not, um, book, I had thought perhaps, I, I had forgotten that she was from that uh, dystopian future with the maestro, and that uh, I thought she was a member of uh, the Pantheon, but uh, I was wrong in my assumption. So I don't remember how Banner got separated either or went to the pocket universe. I can't quite, I, I know it was when they all the heroes jumped in the clothes. Oh. Onslaught. Ah, that's it. That's it. But I don't remember how he gets separated from the Hulk, or maybe if he was separated at that time. Yeah, yeah Franklin I, Richards put them all there, right? Well, they they all went in because apparently non-mutants that's, weakened that's him. That's why the X-Men right. you know, stayed in this universe, and I don't really remember why Spider-Man didn't go in with them, except for the fact... You know, they, they basically, I think this was, you know their attempt to do a crisis type thing and had the heroes reborn taken off. I don't think they planned on coming back, Mm. but they left themselves the back door because heroes reborn did not take off. I don't think it's nearly as bad as people make it out to be, but I know uh, they used, I know that in it, 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 it was in the Hulk comic book that I think Dr. Strange used the Hulk's body as a means to locate where the heroes went if I remember correctly, and that's kind of how they got them back to to our Earth. Because I, I think they weren't actually in a pocket universe. At one point, they ended up on, like, a counter-Earth on the other side of the sun. Eh, you know. Just, well, when they, were, when they were Heroes Reborn, they were actually in, in, a universe, universe. in a pocket universe contained inside of a ball that Franklin was carrying around. And then Franklin brought that Earth, I think he set that Earth out on the other side of the sun. There was something about that. Well, the count, I mean, counter-Earth well, it was a Counter Earth in the seventies. Yes, but that was the sh- that was created by the High Evolutionary. Yes, but I believe that was destroyed, and so this was a way to bring Counter Earth back. Was when Franklin, I guess, when he pulled the, uh, because Doom was ruling that Earth over there for a while when it was actually back in the Marvel Universe, and ah, the nineties, what a wonderful time. You know, I, but like Sean, <laughs> like Sean started to say, I think the nineties get kind of a bum, bum rap. Oh uh, no, I I didn't mean it to sound that way. I mean, it's there was a, there was a lot going on then. There, I mean, there was there was a lot, there was a lot of bad stuff that came out that that deserves that bum rap. But there was also a lot of quality stuff that gets swept away with the good stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I think you uh, covered that a while back on that one that one issue that you did the uh, Rob Liefeld book that you did. The... Oh, Captain America. Well, no, no, it was it was just recently the one the Gen X or whatever rejects Gen or something. Oh, that that horrible one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's what I'm saying. That was a '90s book that was really bad, and you know, the people take a look at that and go, "Oh, well, this is indicative of all of the '90s," and that's really not the case. There was a lot of good stuff out there. You just the stuff that sold was the kind of stuff that the Liefelds and the McFarlands and Jim Lee, you know, put out. So, you know, it's you, you kind of have to dig deeper in the '90s to to get to the good stuff, unfortunately. Yeah, you have to be willing to wade through some of the crap. And, you know, there was 
probably too much of an emphasis on artist-driven books, which was really the image thing. You know, they, they were artist-driven, not writer-driven. And and sometimes, you know, somebody like McFarlane, who wouldn't really write a detailed story and would just kind of, you know, throw things against the wall and see what stuck. You know, I, th- I think that hurt the 90s, and yet he comes out of it unscathed somehow. Yeah, it's because he sells toys. Yeah, that and uh, well, I, I don't want to get in on a McFarlane rant. Uh, I'll, I'll leave my criticism of it where, of him where it was on that one. But like I said, I think the '90s get overly knocked down, and and some of that stuff they had done with Heroes Reborn was not bad to read at all. I didn't think, uh, and that was an imagization of Marvel, if that's a, a word that makes sense. So I guess you know they they oh, yeah. they were more artist driven in those books, but some of the art was really good. I remember uh, I think I think Iron Man was done by uh, Jim Lee, if I'm remembering right, and that was pretty cool looking. Mm-hmm. I don't remember who drew the Avengers, but I kind of liked that artwork at the time. Captain America, you know, Liefeld is hit and miss sometimes. Some of his anatomy, <laughs> his uh, his perspective is just wonky but overall overall, I I didn't think it was nearly like I said nearly as bad as what they tried to make it out to be the Fantastic Four kind of went off the rails a little bit story wise if I remember right yeah it's it's been a while since I read those well the ad in this book wasn't when I think a 90s ad I don't think this was this was vibrant Uh, it it didn't have that gritty feel to it. it it was still like pop art images that actually leapt off the page that drew your eye to them and you weren't going oh that's a really wonky ankle that's a really bad looking thigh you know it's mm-hmm. it was, it's 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 good superhero art yeah i i agree i i i think it's i think the layouts are more 90s i, I think diodato is a good artist uh and i think you know some of this is he was playing with the style of the time but I think his talent kind of comes through. Yeah, well, his his non-powered characters in the, in the few pages that they have don't look ridiculous. They look like normal people. Yeah, yeah, good point. So, page nine, where the Hulk's arms are o- over, over his head, he's got, like, Michael Phelps' arms. His arms are longer than his body. <laughs> Those things are huge. Page nine. Be a hell of a swimmer. <laughs> oh yeah, that that is a little. Like, uh, they just keep going up and up. <laughs> I mean, yeah, because yeah. yeah, especially he he draws the Hulk as being kind of stocky, so you're figuring with his arms like that, they probably reach the ground. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. It's like whoa, because because <laughs> the, the his it, the body shot you know where it comes down to is just about to his waist. Yeah, and, and that looks like so, you know that would be right yeah. about his bicep if he put his arms down. <laughs> Another thing on this page that we get is is a very stereotypically ninety thing with the I, I don't know who the character is, but the character with the gigantic gun techno strapped to his back. Yeah, yeah, and of course he's also got the uh, the Karate Kid headband as well, so that's awesome. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that that is very nice. Or even uh, 
what's her name, Janice, with, you know, the, she's kind of, you know, the woman with kind of the mohawk and, uh, you know, the long ponytail. Mm-hmm. That's kind of a 90s look, too. And I, um, I always really liked the character design for Citizen V. I thought he looked really cool. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, he seemed to have sort of a, I guess, kind of a takeoff of what V for Vendetta, obviously. I don't know whether he's trying to ape that sort of look, but his sort of blank mask there. Mm-hmm. And also having the patriotic, you know, flag sort of, uh, you know, part of his, uh, the front part of his cape uh, covering the, the front of his chest is, you know, works there as well. But, yeah, and, then, a and then what a slap in the face to have it turn out to be Baron Zemo. <laughs> right? What? <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> Ouch. Well, didn't Never they try to out. establish Citizen V as some type of legacy character? Yeah. They but I don't, I, I don't know if he actually was a character in the 40s, though. I, I don't think he was. I think there may have been a character with that name. At some point, that got mentioned or was, you know, in a very, very short appearance. Because, but then they tried to establish this whole. I remember there was a mini, like, I think they did a one issue. Of wasn't it Bolts called with, the V, the V Battalion or something? Yes, yes, there was something like that. <clears throat> there was like a whole organization of citizen V's. Well, don't you have one in your neighborhood? <laughs> yes, it's the neighborhood watch. They all carry swords. I'm going to the source of all information, Wikipedia. And Citizen V is the code name of several fictional superheroes in the Marvel Comics universe. The original Citizen V was an obscure hero from the golden age of comics. But that character's identity was revived in the modern day in the pages of the Thunderbolts. The various incarnations of the character have usually been affiliated with an organization called the V Battalion. The V in the character's and group's name is the letter V as opposed to the numeral 5 and is derived from the World War II era slogan V for victory. Not Vendetta. Okay. Now, it does not say when the original appearance, when, when the Golden Age appearance was, so I still don't know if that is based on a retcon of him having been a Golden Age character or if it's... A true Golden Age appearance, but they at least presented it as being Golden Age. So I'll just accept Wikipedia as fact, and we'll go on with our lives. Sounds good to me. <laughs> Anybody yeah. else got anything else on this one? No, I liked it. Good issue. Yeah, it was fun. I think the guy that barged into that meeting is going to change his shorts. <laughs> <laughs> Colonel, I have a whoop. Oh, yeah, they both, uh, as soon as he burst in, they both aimed their guns at him. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, that could be messy. <laughs> exactly. All right. Bill, you got our DC today, right? Yes, I do. What do you got for us? Meanwhile, at the Hall of Justice. I have the Warlord. Um, <clears throat> and my info is coming from Mike's Amazing World. Mike is our our overseer, our overlord on the website. He all knows hail, all. All hail Mike stuff. the Overlord. All hail Mike, Mike, Mike. I for one welcome Mike and his ty- ty- <laughs> tyrannical rule. <laughs> welcome our Mike Overlord. Yeah, uh, we have 
The Warlord, issue one, cover date, January, February, 1976, on sale, October 16th, 1975, price, 25 cents. Cover artist, Mike Grell, and on our cover, we see the Warlord, dressed in his snazzy black outfit with a skull on his belt, standing aside uh, a lovely redhead with a sword, and they're facing off a pack of uh, 'er ne'er-do-wells who mean to do them harm. And um, we begin our story. Uh, the story title is This Savage Land, written and illustrated by Mike Grell, edited by Joe Orlando. The story begins with Oliver Queen. Wait, no, sorry. No, that's Lieutenant Colonel Travis Morgan, Vietnam pilot, whom while fleeing from Russian airspace in an SR-71 spy plane, ran out of fuel over what he thought was somewhere around the North Pole. But in reality... He had followed the curvature of the Earth inwards toward the core of the Earth. The core of the Earth. Hero, help me out here. Uh, nope, sorry. Oh, <laughs> I thought you the blood of the Earth. Oh, black blood of the Earth? There you go, sorry. <laughs> sorry. All right, you're going to have to give me the reference there because I don't know it. Big trouble, little China. Okay. That's not water. Black blood of the Earth. Jimmy Noel? I mean, Black Blood of the Earth. 2,000 years ago, huge earthquakes turned the world upside down. Many normal people were killed. Many unnatural people. Rome free to commit great offenses against the gods. You ever been to New York? He found himself <coughs> excuse me. He found himself in a world of eternal sunlight, a timeless world where prehistoric beasts still roam a towering tropical forest. The world of Scar Tarsus. Morgan is engaged in a ballet of death with a red headed female. Aren't we all, fellas? Aren't we all? I we wish. <laughs> We quickly learn that the two are actually sparring together. They have recently escaped the city of Thera. The woman is named Tara, whom Morgan had rescued and is attempting to return her to her homeland, Shambhala Bing Bong. Okay, it's just Shambhala. I was uh, being a little frivolous, which is what I do. When they finish the mock combat, Tara seductively approaches Morgan to thank him for the training. Morgan smiles as a, holy crap, a flip and a foot almost to his jibblies, followed by a knife to his throat. Whoa, baby, a little rough. Tara tells him this was all a final lesson to expect the unexpected. Insert Spanish Inquisition joke here. They continue <laughs> the journey. <laughs> they continue the journey through the jungle, talking about science. Boring. Gravity. Boring. Hey, water ballet. Now you're talking. It's a visual, <laughs> folks. Trust me. Later, on a, a local animal is going to provide a tasty meal, but, whoa, Tubby the T-Rex spoils the meal and runs him up a tree. While up there, they spot slavers um, <clears throat> heading to Balsavar. Balsavar, it's your store. The slave market. Morgan wants to help them, but Tara, being the bitch that she is says be thankful that we are not among them for now 
During that night, as they sleep, as they slept, Tara is lured away by a satyr. Morgan awakes and finds Chris Honeywell, I mean the satyr, making her dance. Kicking the satyr's ass, I guess because he was a hippie musician. <laughs> uh, the, the two then boogie back to the cave that they had sought, reference in, sought shelter in to find unwanted guests, slavers. Fighty McFightenstein ensues, copyright 2011, Andrew Leyland. And wham, I was the warlord until I took a mace to the head. Morgan awakes, awakens to find himself and Tara are, lo- are linked up in the slave convoy. Oh, we got a great slave convoy trucking through the sand. Uh, uh, Weren't you asked not to sing anymore? Oh, I know. <laughs> you can't stop the music. You can't stop the music. Nobody can stop the music. I think we can uh, say that that's the answer to the question of whether you will stop singing or not. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Not one to sing 70s tunes all day. Morgan has a plan using his titanium titanium chain dog tags. Now, hold on. Did they really do this in Vietnam? Does can't. Can anybody answer that question? Because when you, I, yeah, when you were in the military, you didn't have titanium dog tags. No, we didn't have titanium dog tags, let alone a chain. Wow, you were you were in the uh, the lesser military. I was in the cheap military, I guess. Anyway, he's going to use the titanium chain uh, to methodically wear through Tara's collar while while they're sleeping or while they're pretending to be asleep, which is made of softer iron. Now, wouldn't while he's tugging on that, isn't he choking her to death? Yeah, okay. Just... <laughs> Some chicks are into that. <laughs> little uh, erotic uh, asphyxiation there. So anyway, uh, unfortunately, the jig is up one night when a guard notices what's going on. And uh, Morgan, who was almost through with uh, bre- breaking her chain, snaps the collar, buys time for... Buys time so she can escape on a horseback. Fight, fight, fight. Sword pommel to the head. Blackout. Wake up. Snide remark to the slaver. Tied to a tree. The end. (laughs) Next, arena of death. And that's my synopsis, and I'm sticking to it. I probably shouldn't say this, but I like this issue. (laughs) Oh. This story is so all over the map that I shouldn't like it. But I do just the same. If you read on, like I was saying earlier, before we start started the show, there's a lot more g- going on. And like in issue two or three, you see where there's computers and holograms, and you find out that part of At- Atlantis had sunk into here, and its technology was used. And then there was a gr- there was a great war civilizations were destroyed and then people were mutated and the it's it it gets pretty good i mean i'm, I'm only about six issues in but it's not bad like i said it's just kind of convoluted though which you know yeah, I, think, I, think, I think it's not like necessarily new reader friendly which considering it's issue number one i don't know if that's the best way for it to be well, they do kind of recap things in in the first uh, two two or three pages. They do do a quick re- recap of how he got there, and I guess he'd only actually been in a couple issues prior to this. So, I mean, it's still pretty early on in the story, right? I mean, the whole Hollow Earth thing is kind of weird. 
I mean, they have that nice diagram of how he followed the curvature of the Earth, and he flew into the inside the Earth without even knowing it. Kind of cool that they worked this into Justice League Unlimited. Yeah, I don't remember watching that. Was my that. first exposure to really, wow. yeah. I mean, I think I had heard of him before, but I didn't really know that he... I thought he was on another planet. Uh, until I read this, I didn't realize. Or maybe I didn't remember that from that episode. Or maybe I actually didn't see all of it. But, uh, but yeah, I didn't really realize that he was in the center of the Earth. Yeah. So I, 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 I'm ne- I've never been much of a sword and sorcery guy. So I never really got too into this, but I always loved Mike Grell's art. So... You know, I, for that reason, I picked up a few of these issues. I also picked up, uh, we had covered a couple of months back, Star Slayer, which was another Micrell series, sword and sorcery, space-type series. Oh, yeah, that's the one that had the backup by Tim Truman, didn't it? With um, That was where the book I did a while back, Grimjack. Yes. Isn't that? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I think Grimjack, I don't, I don't remember if Grimjack was in the issue that we covered or if it came up Oh, later. no, no, no. I mean, it was it was later in the run, I think, yeah. And, uh, I mean, Mike Rell, to me, always came up kind of, you know, not quite as good as, but very similar to Neil Adams in a lot of ways, his facial renderings. Uh, mm. So for that reason, you know, being that Neil is one of my favorites, a guy who has a similar style to his also always appealed to me. Uh, so I, I would definitely go, you know, for his stuff. I mean, some of the things he did actually with Green Arrow were, were really good. Uh, what was what was that, uh, the trade that they did? Uh, Long, that was Longbow Hunters? Longbow Hunters. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Great, great mm-hmm. issue. Yeah, and, uh, Mike Grell... Mike Grell, for me, has always been a great artist. I mean, his stuff always looks good, even his stuff that he did back in the Legion. But uh, I've never picked any of this up either, and <clears throat> unfortunately, I don't have a scan of it in front of me, but from the description that Bill gave, it sounds like a fun book. Plus, I didn't, you know, it, it must have just passed over me, you know, watching the Justice League admitted that that this was the one. This was the one where Green Lantern and Supergirl go to that uh, that uh, ancient, you know, sort of warlord like planet. Is that the is that the episode that you're thinking of? No, I I think it was. Or am I, thinking uh, something else? I think it was Star Girl and uh, it was Green Arrow. Was it Green Arrow? Green Arrow's there. Green Arrow's there. Supergirl's there. I think Star Girl's there because I know. Okay. They had a, they had a cache of kryptonite there for some reason. Oh, and, what, uh, yeah, what is, or it was something was affecting Supergirl. So wasn't that Stargirl just in like the op- Was that a full issue, uh, issue episode, or was that just the opener to an episode? That was the full episode. They were coming back from a mission and got sucked That's into the, yeah, it was a, the curvature of the Earth or the Earth. <laughs> I mean, black blood of the Earth. <laughs> Enough of that. All right, here we go. Back to Wikipedia again. Warlord has appeared in the episode Chaos at the Earth's Core, voiced by Paul Guilfoyle. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Green Lantern, Supergirl, Stargirl, and S-T-R-I-P-E stumbled onto Skarteris and teamed up with him to stop 
Daimos and his unlikely allies Metallo and Silver Banshee of the Secret Society from stealing a huge piece of kryptonite rock. Warlock, Warlord ended up dueling with Daimos, which ended with Daimos plummeting down a ledge. Tara Machiste, Mariah, Shakira, and Jennifer Morgan also appeared in this episode. You can't go wrong with Wikipedia. No. You're breaking the cardinal rules. You're not supposed to open windows. <laughs> the, the scene in this when he gets hit in the head with the mace, I don't know how anybody survived that. <laughs> he should be dead. I was the warlord until I took a mace to the head. It isn't as if he just <laughs> took a crack in the head with the mace. This guy threw a mace. Chucks it. It hits him in the back of the head. Boom. And and the the you know the bumpy metal part at the head of it had to be close to the size of his head. And then later, <laughs> later, I mean, later he takes a sword pummel to the side of the head. And his like eyes are rolling up. Oh. Yeah. Like on the next to last page. Whammo. Yeah. Well, he, he took the uh, the hilt mm-hmm. to the side of his face. Had You know, you, I, I'm thinking at least a fractured orbit there. Right in the temple. Yeah, that would so yeah, but you know, but he had the titanium steel uh, <laughs> dog tags, I, and you know what? Who's impressed by titanium steel? They weren't good enough, good enough to hold uh, King Kong. Those are made of titanium. Bing, 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 you bing. don't need to be worried. He's being held by titanium steel. <laughs> Snapped it like it was paper. Now the the page <laughs> the t- the top uh, the page that's numbered. 14 unfortunately um sean can't see these but um at the top of page 14 with the line of slaves trumping off into to the desert it took me a second to realize that the guy like in the center of the page that has his hand up he's not turning and waving he's being whipped (laughs) by the guy on the horse i was like why is that guy waving i don't get oh wait he's being whipped never mind hey guys how's it (laughs) ow (laughs) <laughs> and what's he got against satyrs i mean satyrs gotta eat right he just beats them for no i mean he doesn't ask maybe the satyr was lonely he just wanted to see a beautiful girl dance so he plays his little pan flute no this guy just comes in and just cold cocks him Oof. it's a violent place the center of the I, earth I but you gotta love water ballet on page five yeah that's that is a just a kind of a cool thing. He definitely acclimated himself to this new society very quickly. Just, just for Sean's benefit. So there's a half naked man standing in a in a river, and there's this redheaded woman. He's holding up overhead in the air, and she's got her arms spread like she's flying. She is clothed, but you get the picture, Sean. A little synchronized Ooh. swimming. Yeah. Oh. oh God, he's falling into the door to hell. I'm disappointed that I'm not seeing that. <laughs> and obviously, uh, this was before they updated the Tyrannosaurus, because uh, now, now they, he looks a lot different. He's got a little bit... That's like the old version of the T-Rex. What do, you mean, what do you mean updated the Tyrannosaurus? Well, I mean, they don't really make him look like that now. They, they make his, like, you know, from Jurassic Park, his head's more a little, like, rounded in the front, the nose comes out more. He's got like yeah. I see he, what you. I see what you're saying. He's he's he's. That's why I called him 
Tubby the T-Rex. Like somebody smushed his face in like he's a pug T-Rex. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, anybody? you know. Oh, go ahead. No, no, no. No, go ahead. As you say, anybody else got anything uh, Anything else on this one? Uh, this is a series I might have to look into because I do like sword and sorcery stuff. So this might be right up my alley. I I got one, issue 1 through 133, so... I think Marvel tried to hit on this same type of thing when they did uh, Skull the Slayer. Mm. And he, he you know, basically went through a time warp and went back in time. But I think it only survived for like four issues. Wow, really? Only yeah. four, maybe five. Would you, would you even need that when you had the Conan property? Well, I, I think, though, they were shooting for the normal current day uh, American citizen I see, yeah. you know, put into a sword and sorcery background which is exactly what they did with well although it was futuristic but it's the same thing they did with that Star Slayer uh, series eventually oh did you guys read the chain mail which is the the letter page where they <laughs> actually tried to title. <laughs> <laughs> they actually tried to explain the whole hollow earth thing about the the like like the science behind it. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I neglected to read that. I'm probably better <laughs> was, off. Was it Stan Lee type science? No, it's 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 books that people have published. It's not Stan Lee. It's well, I'm not saying it's maybe Stan Lee didn't write it with them, but uh, you know, it's not ants flying from uh, New York to Nevada and the same time it takes a god to get there but hey that's a different episode that hasn't even put out yet well but or we'll will be by the time this, this is one. out yes. oh god this whole timey-wimey thing kills me everybody listen to weeks. everybody listen to avengers spotlight if you haven't listened yet the greatest the great new show from two true freaks avengers spotlight boom any anything else on the warlord going once Sounds like a fun. Sounds like a fun book, and you, again, you can't go wrong with Mike Rowe. I no totally way. agree with you. All right, which of our indie boys is going first? I'll step up. Uh, oh, okay. Okay. Good. Uh, my book is uh, from Dark Horse Comics. It was released in uh, August of 1988. It is. Aliens, Volume 2, Issue Number 1. Get away from her, you bitch! <sighs> I guess uh, in uh, the 80s, after the popularity of the James Cameron movie, obviously called Aliens, you know, Dark Horse scooped up the rights to that, and Dark Horse was known at the time for doing a lot of um, the sort of uh, movie adaptation books. I know they did that Terminator and Predators and Aliens, and uh, this is the second sort of miniseries that they did for the Aliens books, and it's kind of, well, it's kind of controversial, and I'll kind of get the, the discussion about that after I get up on with the synopsis, but uh, it came out, like I said, in August of 98. Uh, the writer was Mark Verheiden. I think I pronounced that right. Art was uh, beautifully uh, watercolored by a uh, Dennis Bouvais. I think I'm again another 
word that I can't get out. Uh, letterer was Bob Panaha, and editor was Randley Stradley. Amidst the cold, inky blackness of space, a cargo ship that looks vaguely similar to the Sulaco from Aliens heads towards its destination, the planet Earth. However, the occupants might not be too happy about reaching the destination, as all the transmissions that they receive show the devastation and destruction wrought by the aliens on Earth. Watching the images grow less and less frequent, Butler, the pilot of the ship, wonders what the hell they've done. Butler is approached by a young woman who tries to console him, but his inability to make changes in the course of the ship, he's feeling a bit peeved. Of course, it could also be that Butler has been horizontally bisected and discovered not only is he a Wayland yutani android, but the woman who was trying to console him was Newt, the outgrown girl who was rescued from the original Aliens planet LV-426. Butler tells Newt that he's unsure about everything that's gone on between them, so Newt hurries off to a room on the ship to get some rest. Of course, Newt is troubled as well about the situation, but luckily, Colonial Marine Corporal Dwayne Hicks comes in to console her. Unluckily, for some reason, Hicks decides to get all kinds of rapey on Newt until he starts, until he starts to convulse, and out of his chest bursts a fully formed xenomorph. Screaming, Newt awakes from her nightmare and runs to the command deck to tell Butler and Hicks that she knows that the aliens are on board the ship. Hicks and Butler are theory at first to believe her, but eventually they relent and head out to go check out the rest of the ship with a very limited weaponry they have. Newton Hicks enter the cargo hold, where they find communication cables ripped and alien acid burning through the floor. It appears that there were four pods containing aliens, with one dead and cannibalized on the cargo bay floor. The duo head back to the flight deck and plan to seal off the cargo bay, when a xenomorph drops down from the ceiling, blocking their exit path. Hicks plugs a shell into the carapace of the aliens, spraying corrosive blood all over the wall and causing a breach in the hull. The two run from the closing blast doors and the air escapes into the vacuum of space. Newt makes it out before the door's shut, but Hicks isn't as lucky as he holds onto the belt of his rifle that made it out the now shut blast doors. Newt desperately tries to override the lock before Hicks meets the same fate as the alien, and eventually she's able to pull the marine from being blown out into space. The two take a brief rest, knowing that although they killed one of the aliens, there were still two more left. We cut to the command deck, where Butler sees Newt carrying in a suffering from the Ben's Hicks into the pilot chair. Groggly Hicks activates the onboard video system in an attempt to find the remaining two aliens. And, as luck would have it, they are right near the aft deck, where the external hatch is. Blowing the hatch, Hicks rids the ship of the remaining xenomorphs, complaining that the entire mission was nothing more than a milk run. But this thought is cut short by the sound of screeching across the outer hall. The aliens are trying to get back in. We cut again to the EVA bay, where Nude is sitting up for a spacewalk. But with no external cameras and only four rounds from the rifle, Hicks thinks it'll be a supremely bad idea for her to go out. But Nude feels that there's no other solution, that the aliens will wait for them, and they will find a way to kill them and she's not about to let this happen. Pressuring up the soup, Newt exits the ship to try and find the two acid-filled buffs. She climbs her way to the communications disc, disc, the communication dish, sorry, on top of the ship, but finds no trace of them. Signaling Hicks that she's going to make another pass on the ship, Newt is suddenly beset upon by the alien, and she blasts away at it, knocking it off the ship. Unfortunately, the recoil of the gun knocks her back and causes her to lose the rifle. 
Newt uses her tether to pull herself back to one of the thrusters and contacts Hicks, saying that she couldn't find the last one, and it was probably blasting in space when Hicks opened the cargo bay doors. But no sooner than she says that, that she puts her hand in the gooey secretion of the alien, who's been waiting for her all the time in the thruster. On the bridge, Butler screams for Hicks to, to activate the thrusters, but he succumbed to the effects of the decompression. Butler drags his torso across the floor to the ignition switch and tells Newt to get clear as he activates the thrusters, burning the remaining alien to ash. Crisis averted, Newt heads back to the ship to take care of the alien Corporal Hicks. Meanwhile, some time has passed, and the ship is autopiloting to its final destination. After landing, Newt carries the wounded Hicks and the vivisected Butler out of the cargo bay doors to reveal... A to reveal a chamber filled with aliens held in cryotanks, and a mad-as-hell sergeant yelling, If you damage my specimens, I'll see you hang. And that ends issue one of the second volume of the Aliens book. And I, I loved this. This was, this was just a, a nice follow-up to, to the whole uh, Aliens movie. Uh, that unfortunately, after Aliens three came around, was rendered pretty much null and void yeah i mean because you know this was this is one of those things like you know in star wars where they didn't know where it was going to be going so they simply carried on with the characters of newt and hicks you know flying around and dealing with aliens and eventually they got the license to do uh uh sigourney weaver's character ripley and she came back in the series as well but uh once Alien 3 came out, this kind of was retconned to be the the characters of Newton Hicks were rewritten as a couple other... They, they just basically changed their names, and it was essentially the same characters with just different names. But I, I really enjoyed this, especially the artwork on this. Uh, the art, If you're looking at the artwork on the cover, in fact, that cover art, I think, won some major award, but it's just... The dynamic look of the fire and the shading on the alien and the the spray of the gas it's just and and the lighting the the sort of blue lighting that get it just is so evocative of the movie that i i i really enjoy it what do you guys think about it yeah i i agree with you i think the cover is awesome actually and and what you said about the lighting and the way it kind of changes you know you have the the red at the the blue at the top the red at the bottom the fire in the background, uh, mm -hmm. the, the the alien coming towards you, looking very menacing. Uh, it's just so well done, and the artwork within it is is all really good. Sometimes when when you get these painted watercolor issues, they tend to get muddy to the point where they don't even look like comic art anymore. And this one does not have that. This looks like comic art, but it just looks like you know, really well, well, well designed comic art uh mm -hmm. it almost looks like like he penciled it and then watercolored it as opposed to just watercoloring it right away you know well especially on some of the work on the on the ships uh on the ships and the designs of the aliens those look like they're more colored in when you get to the the characters especially you know the uh the characters like uh the non-main characters they look a bit more sketchy but uh, overall, they've got a really good look. And uh, the thing that really struck me about this was how they captured the sort of dark, uh, 
moody lighting that you'd find in the uh, James Cameron movie. I'm looking at like the uh, fourth page here where Newt is going up to Butler and talking to him, the sort of green shading of it. It's, it's just really, you know, just beautiful coloring in here. And the, the, the watercolor artwork's awesome. I'm looking at the red coloring on page eight where the alien is bursting out of Hicks. Mm-hmm. I really like that. I do have problems with the whole Newt thing. Uh, first of all, when Alien 3 came out, I kind of felt cheated by the fact that they killed off Hicks and, and Newt. Like you, mm-hmm. you, you spent the whole movie of Aliens, which I thought was a great movie, uh, you know, for them to, to survive and then just killing them off. I, I know it's a, a horror movie trope, but just killing them off to start off, I, I really just would have preferred, you know, I, you were invested in those characters, and I would have preferred that they just had something where, you know, they were already gone, and Ripley was it was away from them for some reason and went on this other adventure. Uh, just having them show up dead at the beginning of it, I don't know, it, it, it bothered me, and it made me feel cheated a little. But then now, to go into this book and have uh, Nude as a kind of a sexy adult, it makes you almost feel dirty. <laughs> Well, especially uh, on that same page where you see the the alien bursting out of Hicks's chest, the the little inset panel there with the uh, Newt, that is uh, that's a pretty risque shot with her sitting mm-hmm. up with her top and her legs spread apart. So yeah, yeah, it's it's just you know having her be the child in uh, in distress and in, in aliens and and then trying to acclimate that to the shot that you just described. It just, you know, you expect child services to be knocking on your door, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's just it's just not right. That's all I can say. I yeah, agree. Kind of kind of threw me at the beginning too, but I got over it real fast. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, and I never read because the ad's so good. Uh, yeah. Well, it's very it's very simplistic, very angular art. I mean, uh, the characters are all. Um, I wanna I wanna harken back to sort of the Joe Staten type look, that very uh, simplistic, square, very uh, clean lines look. But I think the coloring is just what does it. It gives it, it gives it the perfect mood of an alien film, and that's why I, I so enjoyed this. And it's another thing about this, this is one of those books being the first of a four-issue series that definitely ends in a way that makes you want to go and read the next book and find mm-hmm. out what the heck is going on here. And the story is dense. There's a mm-hmm. lot going on in here. Yeah, and it doesn't it doesn't really let up, you know. They uh, and it's the fact that they're they don't have any weapons. They've only got one gun with like five rounds in it. You know, the, the, on in, in the movie Aliens, they were pumping rounds into them all over the place and not doing a thing to them. So now that they're having to take out these four aliens with five bullets, you know on a ship that they can't control and and you're just sort of uh, I, I also like that they've just put you into this situation that you really don't know what's going on that uh that that, that works well for the story as well yeah i agree i think uh, uh is everybody still uh oh we, we lost a hero for a minute uh, oh no hero <laughs> uh, do I have to call him back? Get him back! Or? Get to the get to the call! You know, 
Get to the chopper! <laughs> oh, dear lord. So yeah, I, I, I would have... might have to... Yeah, you may have to call him back in. I just tried oh, to... He's coming! Come on, you can make it! He's trying. Come on, Koi, again! You have what you want, I'll keep those people here! <laughs> <laughs> Sensors indicate no hero. Oh, crap. He's gone dark. Hero! So was that all that all that on my end, or did that drop out for everybody? No, I was just plain zero. <laughs> I I did the Arnold cry for you when you went away. Oh, we were all upset. You, you, were you telling me to get to the chopper? Yes, yes exactly. <laughs> I went, Hero! Get to the chopper! Get to the chopper! <laughs> Oh, boy. We also sang uh, The Girl from Ipanema with Arnold voices. So catchy. So we were talking about I don't the know, Sean was saying something about some aliens. <laughs> uh, about the creepiness of uh, grown-up nude. You know, Ooh, yeah, last no. time we saw so do we have anything else? <laughs> no, I remember getting these because I was, uh, this came out when, in 89? 89, yeah. August of, it says, so it was out actually on the stands. I think about the time I was out of boot camp in San Diego and I was back, back in the saddle, going to the comic book store. Two months of boot camp and I was ready. I was watching War of the Worlds on TV, the series. And uh, just having a good old time. Just blowing all my money on alcohol and comic books. Ah, where are the good days gone? Yeah, because you're going to be stuck on a boat with a bunch of dudes. Hey, that didn't come for like another two or three years because I went to a bunch of schools. And then they had to build my ship. So, yeah, I I spent the first three or four years on the land, buddy. I'm no dummy. Land lubber. Yeah, this is a series that I've heard a lot about, and uh, I've never actually gotten the chance to read. So after reading this one uh, to whet my appetite and seeing how it it really does feel like it it left out of the alien universe, I uh, I definitely need to to finish reading this miniseries. Yeah, I, I, yeah totally... I, I I didn't read the first one, so I guess the first one sort of dovetails into this. So you get to learn about I guess Newt's relationship with Butler, whatever that is. But this one, this one turns out really good. Uh, I'll kind of spoil ahead. The guy at the end is sort of breeding aliens as a as a kind of a military force, and he's trying to train the aliens to uh, do what he, uh, you know, to, to to be a military force and do what he says. And uh, as you can imagine, it it doesn't go well. <laughs> Well, really, kind of what like happens. I've seen the rest of the movies. It seems like yeah. a flawless plan. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, because that's kind of the part of the and plot just, for the fourth movie. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, I've never seen the fourth movie. Oops, spoiler. It's, eh, it's okay. Well, that's what I, I remember hearing. I, I was. It took me a while to warm up to three. When I first saw it, I didn't like it. Uh, and when four came out, I heard such negative things about it that I just kind of let it sit and uh, I never watched it and the opportunity hasn't presented itself. I think if I was flipping through the channels and it was on, I'd, I'd watch it, but I don't think I'd go out of my way to see it. I I I will say this. It has one of the best 
death scenes oh, in any of the, the aliens end. movies. No, not even that. This oh. I don't want I don't want to spoil it for Paul. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 something you got to see. <laughs> All right, maybe I do have to seek it out then. I wonder, like, I wonder if it's on Netflix. I don't think it is, but I think you can rent it through Netflix. But um, uh, one of the neat things is it's one of the early uh, Joss Whedon films. I think I don't know whether he wrote it and directed, but he I wrote think he it. He didn't it. direct it. He did okay, not yeah, he it. wrote it. Yeah, he, he wrote it. So it's got a lot of. If you ever watch the series Firefly or the movie Serenity, there's a lot of uh, yeah. there's a lot of characters in this movie that sort of are analogs to the characters in in that show. So and if you if you had any liking of that, you know you you might enjoy this movie. I have a very long to watch list, mm-hmm. <laughs> and Firefly and Serenity are on that list. At some point, yeah. I will get to them, and they actually—I know—they are on Netflix streaming. Because mm-hmm. I was, I was, I was going through it this evening, and uh, and and I thought about watching that, but rather than watch that, I watched an episode of the Jack Benny Show from 1952. Wow, Benny! <laughs> that I tell you something—he was funny. I didn't really—I n- oh, I never yes. really watched him before. Uh, was it Bill? Was it you that put that thing up on Facebook with? Uh, with, with him Mel and Blank. Mel, Mel Blank when he was the uh, working in the store at Christmas. Yeah, that, that was that, hilarious. That had a dark ending, if I remember correctly. Yes. Like, oh, and he, he was such a nice boy. <laughs> you hear, like, he goes around the corner and there's a gunshot. Yeah, he leaves with a gun. <laughs> and then, then you hear the gunshot and everybody runs over to get to, to see what happened. <laughs> and, and while that's going on, Jack Benny reaches into the cash register to take his money back for uh, what he had bought. Mm-hmm. <sighs> he was when I mean he was like kind of an early version of the character that Larry David plays on Curb Your Enthusiasm. Oh. Uh, guy was you know so self-involved that, that he couldn't couldn't care less about anybody else and is always justifying everything he does. <laughs> so I I don't mind going back to the to the to the real old stuff and watching it. So when I saw that that was on there, I figured out oh, what the heck. And I watched it, and it was a pretty funny show. The golden age of television. Definitely. All right, we got any Long more before my time. Yo, it's, you know what? It, even being the old guy on the show, it's before, well before my time as well. <laughs> All right, we united. Okay. So I guess we're going to shift over to yet another indie, pun intended. Da, 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 da. Come on, hero. <laughs> All right. I came here to save you. Oh, yeah? And who's going to come to save you, Junior? I told you. Don't call me Junior. Look what you did. I can't believe what you did. I decided to uh, drag out the first issue of the adaptation of the Lucasfilm game, Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis. The game itself uh, was a point-and-click adventure in the vein of Maniac Mansion and Sam and Max uh, that came out in 1992. And uh, it's a really well-done game where you really do feel like Indiana Jones and you get to do all the Indiana Jones things with all the Indiana Jones jokes and a beautiful woman by his side and... Nazis and everything that you want. Um, 
But enough about the game. Uh, you can get it on Steam relatively cheap now. It's like two bucks or something. But the comic itself uh, was published by Dark Horse. The cover date was March of 91. The on-sale date was March 26th of 91. It cost you a whopping 250 and it had a 32-page page count. And let's see. Hmm. It was written by William Messner Loeb's. Penciler was Dan Barry. The inker was Carl Kessel. The colorist was Loreen Haynes. And the cover art was done by Dave Dorman. Uh, the cover art is fantastic. It's a very iconic style indie with a machete and the whip and his, you know, his shirt's all sleeveless and his, his muscles are rippling and he looks like he's going to kick some ass. Um, moving on from that, though, as we get into the story, we start with a little dream sequence of Indy and a sort of stereotypical him against a Native American death trap type scenario with his arrows and crocodiles and it's him just having a bad dream. Um, so we, we cut forward a little bit and the, uh, the next day... There's a uh, stranger comes to see him after he's done giving a, a, a lesson. So we actually get to see Indy as a teacher uh, first before he goes on this adventure. And um, honestly, I'm having trouble remembering exactly why he went there. Uh, <laughs> look at the book. Um, the, the long and short of it is uh, this guy that comes to see him is actually a German operative. And uh, he has this, this little bead of metal called orichalcum. And it, it starts this long intertwining story about the Germans trying to get this, this metal to power machines. And uh, Indy needs to go and, and find uh, an old girlfriend of his that uh, her, her, uh, her father, I think, was somehow involved in digging up this, uh, this metal at a specific site. Um, so Indy takes off, finds the girl, Sophia Hapgood. She's a big part of the Indy extended universe because of the, the, the game in this comic. Um, I think she made an appearance in another game. It's you know, first redhead in Indy's career. Good for him. Um, let's see, I'm trying to think what else I could say about this. It's, it's really just a lot of setup for getting Indy and Sophia uh, set off on their adventure to potentially find the source of this metal, which was the fabled lost city of Atlantis, all while trying to have to trying to stay away from the Nazis who are also trying to get to Atlantis so that they can use Atlantean technology to win the war, blah blah blah. We all, you know, figure that's gonna happen because it's an indie book. Um, but one of the things that this series and in, in this this video game itself did was that it brought indie back after uh, just a couple years after Last Crusade when it looked like we weren't going to be getting any more indie adventures. Um, and I remember pumping hours into the game um, and I remember reading this. I think I pretty much got it right off the stands when I was younger. Um, and I think it was one of my first indie books, uh, independent books that I ever bought just because the, the indie name has a, you know, a lot of cachet to it. Um, the art in it is... It's pretty good. It's not super photorealistic, you know, to, to what Harrison Ford looks like, but it's close enough. Um, everybody else in it, I think the only other character, major character that you see is Marcus, who isn't played for laughs. He's actually <laughs> kind of up on what Indy's saying. Um, doesn't look anything like Denim Elliott, but um, the art's rendered pretty well, it, it, and it does get to show, it show you Indy as a professor, as a smart guy, 
and also as a guy that's not going to be taken for a ride by anybody. He's uh, he's aware of his surroundings. And, of course, there's a little bit of daring do with uh, when he gets gets to be with uh, his girlfriend there, Sophia. You know, some gunshots and some breaking of windows and some punching. It's, uh, it's everything that you want to see in an Indiana Jones story um, packed into about 28 pages. And it's only the tip of the iceberg. So like any other good Indiana Jones story, it's that small. And by the time this miniseries ends and by the time the game ends, you are treated to a very lush, very expansive, world-hopping Indiana Jones adventure. Um, I think that's all I can say about it. I, I, I feel like I glossed over quite a bit of it, but it's Indiana Jones. Once you get the setup for whatever mystical thing they're going after, it's pretty much just hold on and go on for the ride. Yeah, this was a good... This was a good game back then because this was like, uh, again, same same time frame when I was in the Navy um, on the boat at this point, And I was <laughs> oh, finally like playing it at sea out there in the middle of nowhere. Everybody was like, hey, what do you got? I got this. So, you you know, you trick trade games and everything. And this, this was, you know, this was a hot, a hot item. Everybody wanted to play the game, something to do. And, uh, yeah, I, I remember the game being really long. You know, you know, there's a lot of puzzles and everything. I mean, for a point-and-click game, it was pretty. It was pretty involved. It was. It was pretty good. I mean, but back then the LucasArts games were. Oh were, yeah. They were top-notch. I mean, they kind of went down a little bit towards the end, and now they're gone. But I'm sure they'll put themselves back together under different studio names. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was the, the LucasArts games. Were, I mean, that's what I played in high school. It was uh, yeah, all those point-and-click games. There was the one that... Didn't Mark Hamill do the voice of a biker? That yeah, was Full Throttle. And it was amazing. Was that Mark Hamill's voice, though, as the biker? He was the bad guy. No, he was the bad guy. Yeah, that's the bad guy. That's right. Yeah. Full Throttle. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah, Loom, ah, Full Throttle, Day of the Tentacle, The Dig. Oh, The Dig, yeah, that was by Spielberg. That, that, yeah, that was another one. Like, oh, wasn't there a fo- what was the follow up to this? Was it Indiana Jones in the to Infernal this game machine? or this? Yeah, to this game, the Infernal Machine. Um, yeah, there was the Infernal Machine. Um, that all, yeah, that was the one that also had Sophia Hapgood in it, I believe. Okay, yeah, yeah. Trying to wonder if she, I trying to remember if she was the one in the novels too. She might be because I think they this was the first like new major character that they introduced in her in the indie universe that that stuck. Yeah, maybe Scott Gardner can tell us. Of course, I'm sure Paul is already pounding away on uh, on. Uh, I I think I hear the little fingers typing now. Well, on his no, piece. no, I actually, no, I didn't. no. Uh, I was just kind of letting you guys run the show with the uh, games talk because, to me, you know, you talk games and I hear uh, Charlie Brown's teacher. <laughs> it's yeah. not not that I don't like games. I do, but I just, uh, you know, I'm old and I played Pong. Hey, Can man. I tell you? Nothing wrong with Pong. Sticks and bricks. <laughs> But you know, I mean, by by the time this came out, I was kind of, I I I was actually never a uh, when it came to video games, I was never big on the adventure stuff, you know, where you had to kind of find find the key and then go back and go into the room and get something and then, you know, all, all of that, 
just kind of was lost on me. I was more into the sports video games and the, uh, you know, the games like you know Robotron and stuff like that. Mm. That was that was more more my uh, level of gaming. Fair enough. Exterminate humans. Exterminate humans. <laughs> I always got a kick out of that one. <laughs> See, I like the the Lucas Arts games. The time I never played the. I'd have only seen like screenshots of the uh, Indiana Jones games, but they look like they really captured the feel. And they uh, definitely do a, this one especially. A, a lot of uh, when LucasArts games would do the uh, Star Wars type game, I played a lot, lot of X-wing versus Tie Fighter and the X-wing games, and they did a oh, yeah. bang up job, especially of bringing in the music and letting the music cues really work with the what's going on in the oh, game. Yeah. So that. This sounds like a heck of a lot of fun. I, re- I remember when, like, you know, when they a- first tried to exploit the uh, Indiana Jones thing and they came out with Tomb Raider for the Atari 2600. And what a, you know, like, what horrible graphics. Do you mean Pitfall? That. Pitfall, excuse me. Pitfall. I said Tomb Raider, my mistake. Yeah. <laughs> That's, yeah, that, I mean, that was incredibly bad. I think they've they've since come out with updated good graphics versions they have. of that, right? Yeah, I remember yeah. the last Pitfall game I played I had for the Sega CD, and it was, uh, that one felt pretty indie-like. It was good. Oh, there was no question. It was definitely trying to to play on the Indiana Jones phenomena when it first came out. Yeah, go, go, uh, oh, But then just, if you remember that awful 2600 uh, Indiana or Raiders Indiana. Lost Art game, that was freaking impossible to... That was, that was <laughs> shit. Or even the 2600 version of... Uh, the Empire Strikes Back, where all you had was the uh, Imperial Walkers. That was the whole game. Oh, yes. I had that. I had that for the Intellivision. It's like, oh, it never ends. Great. I yeah. I had the um. I had the dueling one yeah. with the lightsabers. Oh, I didn't like. No, <laughs> no but uh, Sean, with, with the uh, um, I'm right there the, with you with the um, with the X-wing versus Tie Fighter and um, X-wing game. I might have told the story before, so. We don't need to do a real life with Dr. Bill. We're probably talking a lot of real life already anyway. But when I was on the ship, it was so hard to to balance your your shields and your laser power that we we would have one guy on the joystick and one guy on the keyboard, and the guy on the keyboard was Chewy. So you'd be like, <laughs> Chewy, more shields! And the guy would be over there, Ooh. Oh, good. <laughs> Another that thing the only- with the... Uh, another... Oh, sorry, Bill. No, no, no. No, go ahead. I was gonna say another thing. Uh, this wasn't the first uh, comics that um, that came out after the Marvel series. There was, a, I think, another mini series before it. But um, that first Dark Horse mini with Indy in in this the game in this adaptation kind of kept the the indie property going for quite a long time. Because um, I know Dark Horse just kept pumping out mini series and one shots, um, probably just to hold on to the franchise. But I mean, a lot of it's good stuff. Most of most of them feel really indie-like. The art is questionable on most of them. Um, not like the the art that's in this. The art that's in this is good. The rest of it, I mean, some of it's real scratchy. Um, I don't even know who did it, but uh, for for keeping the torch alive for for indie is probably one of the biggest achievements that the games and in, in the miniseries did. I mean, I mean, how long was it? Uh, eighty-nine to two thousand six. Yeah, seven years. So, I mean, it's you know the same same thing that all the other properties, expanded universe stuff, that it kept stuff going. 
But uh, this one, I think, is definitely worth tracking down if you're an indie fan. I thought some of the artwork was inconsistent. I look at... Uh, yeah. Like, like Indy's face on page six at the top upper left, that almost looks spot on Harrison Ford. Yeah, sometimes uh, it does, and sometimes it looks like crap. And then there's other shots uh, in particular. I'm looking at the shot at the upper left on page 16 where it looks nothing like Harrison Ford. And if they didn't say Jones right in the panel, you, you would think it was some other character. So now, <clears throat> the, the cover, though, that is Dave Dorman. It's beautiful. Not, not and that's like, Harrison Ford. Yeah, well, not like what I just typed in, which was Dave Corman, and I found out he was a guitar player. Um, but, <laughs> but yeah, Dave, Dave Dorman has, has done... Um, Tons of Star Wars art. Uh, he did like the Dark Empire covers, um, other games, other you know this series, I guess. So yeah, that's 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 his, his work on the cover, which is always awesome. And I've stopped the show. That's it. It's 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 sad that the quality of the art, while it's it's passable, is not as good as is that on the cover because i i think that would take it to another level i like i said though it's pat it's passable yeah it it doesn't it doesn't ruin the story it's not so bad you know it's in fact it's not i wouldn't even go far as to as far as to say it's bad like i said i I would use inconsistent uh i'm a little surprised that's the after all the indie stuff that hmm uh, through all the indie stuff that daco has put out the the ad is probably the biggest problem because yeah. it, it really never looks like Harrison Ford. And I don't know if that's a rights issue or if they just got artists that were not good at doing realistic. You know, And, and, and even when, they, when you do get an artist that's good at realistic, it's a very fine line that they walk when they're doing something with somebody who's a real-life person that yeah. a lot of times it seems like the storytelling suffers for the sake of their doing photorealistic pictures. And and you know that's no good either. So they got to find that that delicate balance between the two. And you know, it's easier said than done. Uh, I was a little surprised when you did your recap that you didn't mention the uh, the point when the uh, redhead takes off a blouse. Uh, I didn't want to be that guy tonight. <laughs> we'll leave that to Sean in his discussion of underage Newt, well, who's an adult now. But <laughs> fair enough. It's surprisingly, Sophia's rendered pretty well in every panel she's in. Actually, was was, was there uh, mostly nude women in all of our books? Uh, <laughs> there was so. a redhead in all the books. Well, I don't know. Was nude a redhead? What? Because the Warlord no. had a redhead. The Hulk book had a redhead. This one had a redhead. Three out of four redheads. Mm, you, you messed up, yes. Sean. My bad. See, that's what I get for coming on the show while I'm at uh, we'll have to work on that for next time. Next time you're on, I want a nude redhead in there somewhere. Done and done. Even <laughs> if you have to draw one in there. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of www.forumforgeeks.com. 
Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com and is a registered trademark of DiManzocore of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcasts.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. I live to see you eat that contract, but I hope you leave enough room for my fist because I'm going to ram it in your stomach and break your goddamn spine! I'll be back. Are you Zarkana? See you at the party, Richter! Fuck you, asshole. Oh, you think you're bad, huh? You're a fucking choir boy compared to me! A choir boy! Get to the chopper! You're one ugly motherfucker. Hasta la vista, baby. Get your ass to Mars! No, it's not a tumor. It's not a tumor. clothes, your boots, and your motorcycle. Consider this a divorce. Crush your enemies, see them driven before you, and hear the lamentation of the women. I promise not to kill anyone. To live. Milk are for babies. When you get older, you drink beer. First, I'm gonna use you as a human shield. Then I'm gonna break that shield so they can kill the guard with it. Then I was thinking about breaking your neck. I do not want to touch his ass. I want to make him talk. I don't do requests. I did nothing. The pavement was his enemy. Stick around. Nice night for a walk. I'm pregnant. I let him go. Chill out, Dick One. Honey, you shouldn't drink and bake. I eat green bread for breakfast, and I'm very hungry. First, the air is going to heat up in here to 451 degrees. Then your pass will explode like a Roman candle. Your socks will ignite, and your fingernails will melt. Let off some steam, Bennett. A freeze is coming. Between your face and my Glock 9mm, I'll take the Glock. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Crom, I have never prayed to you before. 
Battle pleases you, Kron. Grant me one request. Grant me revenge. Then if you do not listen, then to hell with you. Come on, Kohaken. You got what you want. Give these people air. Fuck you, asshole. First, I will turn Gotham into an icy graveyard. Then I will pull Batman's heart from his body and feel it freeze in my hand. The bridge is out. You're not sending me to the cooler. Snakes? Did you say snakes? What the hell are you? You know I am. I'm the famous comedian, Arnold Braunschweiger. Come with me if you want to live. Schwarzenegger. Gesundheit. <laughs>